Hello, my name is Philip Camella, and today we're going to have a conversation beyond science and religion. Breaking new ground in thinking, exploring the outer limits of what we know about the world and ourselves, unhindered by common beliefs and perceptions. This is Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Taking on subjects from the Big Bang, the multiverse, and evolution to the supernatural and the new rising consciousness. This is where scientists, philosophers, New Agers, and spiritualists come together to discuss where this world may be heading. Now here's your host, lawyer, philosopher, and the author of The Collapse of Materialism, Philip Camella. So today we're going to talk about the logical path to spirituality. And in many ways, this is an oxymoron because many people think that the path to spirituality is through revelation, through inspiration, through intuition, through something that does not involve the rational process of the mind. And I differ on this point, and so, to, and so today I'm going to talk about this. It comes up a lot in the show, but I thought I, I would sort of lay this out a little bit and to explain why I think that logic can be used to reach what we know as spirituality. So like anything else, when you start off with uh, a new idea or an hypothesis, it's good to clear the mind uh, of preconceptions uh, using what is known as an open mind uh, eliminating the conditioning of society, of what we've been taught. And of course, this is probably impossible to do, but I'm saying it so that maybe we could come close to that. But if you clear the mind of what we think we know as we set off on what I'm going to call a thought journey, then we may see that indeed this logical path to spirituality works. We could consider the journey an hypothesis, and see where it leads. That's another way to do this. Just pretend as if you forgot about everything you uh, were taught to know. Uh, In my view, minds were born to think and reason. That's really what minds do. We think about things, we use rationality, um, but we typically as I mentioned, we typically don't think that we use rationality to find spirit. Spirituality, as Stevie Wonder might say, is an inner vision, the revelation. It's a feeling kind of thing, emotional kind of thing. Spirit does not trade in the currency of science, and we cannot typically use reason to find spirit. Let's see if this is true. Let's see if we can use the mind to find a spiritual world. Now, first we have to talk about worldviews a little bit, one of my favorite concepts. Our current worldview is fractured. It is split between science and spirituality. And the way I like to uh, picture this is science we learn about in universities, classrooms, spirituality in a different building. We're compartmentalizing these two major areas of life. We put science in one building, spirituality in another. For spiritual uh, relief, 
we go to synagogues, churches, we go to spiritual retreats, we go to the mountaintops under a tree to learn science, we go to classrooms, read science books. Now, maybe this is not always true, but I think that the metaphor, the image of viewing this split as being two separate buildings is an accurate one. And then when we look at the two fields, we could see that most modern scientists, and this would be the mainstream scientists, would dismiss spirituality as some type of quackery, that, that spirituality would have no lessons to give the scientific mind. These are completely separate disciplines, science and spirituality, which is one reason why science has the hold, has the hold on the on the university classrooms and on the curriculum because it's viewed as being the authoritative source for the road to truth. And so our worldview, though, is split because science doesn't fulfill all of our needs. We still have this inner quest to know something more, to understand being, why we're here, to figure out if this thought in our mind of a God is true. All these things are in the back of our mind. We know that science is authoritative, but we're split between giving up our full selves to the scientific worldview. Let's back up a second here and talk about what is a worldview. I use the term a lot. I just used it here, but let's just try to define it. And a worldview is really a set of deep beliefs that structure our vision and it may sound like some big topic, big heavy topic, and maybe it is, but it really is exactly what I said. It's deep beliefs, things that are we we're anchor ourselves to the ground. It's the base lens to which we see the world, like a mental software that conditions, influences everything we see. If you imagine uh, getting an eye exam, and you go into the doctor, and they're fitting you for glasses, and they put this instrument on you. I think it's called a photoperture or something like that. And it's got all these lenses on it. Well, those lenses are really metaphors for a worldview. And they sort of pile on with each you know, to each other and form the way we look at the world. But at the base of that lens is really the key worldview. And I'm going to be talking about this for a second. Now, let's just... Give me some, give you some examples here of what a worldview is and how simple the concept really is. For example, two people could look at rain and they might have different worldviews. A farmer might want to see the rain because rain is important to them. A golfer doesn't want to see rain or a baseball player. Rain is bad. Their worldviews influence how they see the world. How about Womanhood, well, Islam uh, structures the worldview of a woman towards being a woman differently than a Hollywood starlet. They're looking at the same concept, but that their worldviews influence how they see the same objective phenomena. And then we have the big one, God. Well, different people view the concept of God differently, such as Richard Dawkins. The author of the book, The God Delusion, thinks we're deluded in believing in God. The Pope, of course, thinks that God is the father of humankind. And then Hinduism thinks about God differently, sort of as the 
base of being. So these worldviews influence how we view the world. It's that simple. Worldview, how we view the world. Now, what are the core elements of a worldview? Well, I think the core elements are how we view ourselves in relationship to the outside world, which would, which would be Mother Nature, how we view ourselves in relation to God as something outside of us, inside of us, or not existing, and how we view ourselves in relationship to ourselves. So these, so I just went through a lot of these terms quickly, but when you think about it, that's really the core, those are really the core elements of a worldview. Now we happen to be living in what I would call the Big Bang worldview. And this is a deep worldview, a deep set of beliefs that structure how we look at the world. The Big Bang worldview tells us that the outside world comes at us. The outside world comes at us, not from us. And the picture of that exploding primordial singularity that spews matter to the far ends of outer space. It's a big bang. And remember, we are supposed to be the outcome, the outgrowth of the big bang residue. That's what the big bang worldview tells us. And by the way, this is not some kind of science fiction account, although I really think it is science fiction, but but in our modern world, this is not science fiction, this is science fact, that we came from this primordial explosion. We come from the world, the world doesn't come from us. We were born in the fire of a primordial explosion. And the key fact here of the Big Bang worldview is that the world is independent of what we are. It's something outside of us. But when we say this question, now we have to answer the, the question, what are we? We have to define what we are. If the world is independent of us, then what are we? Well, in the Big Bang worldview, the God, God is definitely outside of us. We have to remember here that modern Western religion does adopt the Big Bang worldview. They believe that God is outside of us. Ultimate, ultimate reality is outside of us. Some other teachings of the Big Bang worldview. These these are coming from Richard Dawkins, a prime proponent of the Big Bang worldview. He says that we are robot vehicles, okay, little machines that operate outside of the self. We are gene machines, programmed to survive, and because we're born of impersonal stuff, the world has no moral lessons to convey. There's nothing morally accurate or morally important about stuff. The independent world, though, is a model. And this is an assumption. This is very important to understand. Even though we are taught that the Big Bang worldview is fact, it really is a model. And this is a quote from Ernest Meyer from his book, This is Biology. And Ernest Meyer, very well-known biologist um, who taught at Harvard. He actually lived till he was 100. Uh, he wrote a lot of books about uh, evolution. They, he's called a neo-Darwinian. And this is his quote. He says, 
Despite the openness of science to new facts and hypotheses, it must be said that virtually all scientists, somewhat like theologians, bring a set of what we might call first principles with them to the study of the natural world. One of these axiomatic assumptions is that there is a real world independent of human perceptions. Now notice that he uses the word assumptions. This is an assumption. The independent world of the Big Bang is an assumption that scientists bring to their study of the physical world. And this is so important because these scientists believe that science cannot be practiced without this assumption. And this is really the question that the assumption that I question, because I don't think the assumption is correct. Let me give you another um, description of the Big Bang worldview. And this is the question of why do we see the same sky? Do, do Do you ever ask yourself that question? Well, I do, and the answer is one of two two things. Either we see the same sky because there is one independent world outside of us, or perhaps we see the same sky because we are united at the core of our beings. So either the sky is outside of us and we're separate beings viewing the same sky, like moviegoers watching the screen, or we are really the projector projecting the world. So hold on to that thought, because that's where we might be heading here. So in summary, the Big Bang worldview separates us from God, it separates us from the physical world, and it separates us from other people. This is so important because if the sky is outside of us, the world is outside of us, and we all are seeing it because it is independent of us, then indeed we are separate people, separate robots sort of going down our little tracks on the tabletop. So the Big Bang evolution starts with a primordial explosion. That explosion somehow organizes itself into planets and stars, including the planet Earth. And then out of the planet Earth, a human being, animal life, arises. And then out of the human being and the brain arises consciousness which you put that together, it doesn't make a lot of sense because you have a random explosion heading towards the order of the human brain and then consciousness. That sounds strange to me, but it doesn't sound strange to virtually every scientist teaching in universities because, indeed, that is the mainstream scientific opinion. But now we stop and we face the fact that there are a lot of phenomena that put this worldview into question. And everyone loves talking about the quantum theory here, and I will add my own two cents. Here's a, a very good quote from, um, the, from Bernard de Spagna from the Quantum Theory and Reality, Scientific American. He says, The doctrine that the world is made up of objects whose existence is independent of human consciousness turns out to be in conflict with, hum- with quantum mechanics and with facts established by experiment. Let me read that again. The doctrine that the world is made up of objects whose existence is independent of human consciousness turns out to be in conflict with quantum mechanics and with facts established by experiment. 
he's saying that this very assumption that everybody is making in the scientific community that there is that there are objects independent of human uh, consciousness is not supported by quantum theory or the facts established by experiment. In other words, it's wrong. That's basically what he's saying. And here's Niels Bohr, the one of the founders of quantum theory. He says, in, in the quantum postulate in the recent development of atomic theory, he says, an independent reality, in an ordinary physical sense, can neither be ascribed to the phenomena nor to the agencies of observation. Now, Niels Bohr was not exactly the most succinct writer, but I think what he's saying here is that there is nothing in the phenomena that tells us that there's an independent reality, and there's nothing in the way we view the world that tells us there's an independent reality. So where does that lead? It's sounding like an assumption to me. And here is David Lindley, the author of The End of Physics, The Myth of a Unified Theory. He says, quote, the basis of quantum theory is more revolutionary yet. It asserts that perfect objective knowledge of the world cannot be had because there is no objective world. There's no objective world. There's no independent world. All these guys are saying the same thing, but yet the Big Bang is based upon there being an independent world. Something seems wrong in the picture. And then we have the theory of relativity which most people don't understand, don't spend a lot of time with. All we know is that Einstein thought it up and therefore it must be a really good theory. So one of the, the lessons of the theory of relativity is that there is no fixed absolute frame of reference. There's no box out there that it's always there that's unchanging in which human experience plays out. Rather, space is relative to the observer. What does this mean? This means, in my opinion, that there is not an independent spatial world out there, but rather it's a world that sort of goes along with us. Now, you got to think about this one for a minute, and maybe this one's hard to get your head around, but the fact that there's not a fixed frame of reference means there is no movie screen there that's all that's there when we're not looking it is a it's a movie that we are creating as we're going along maybe that's a radical interpretation but that's the one I'm giving right now but the big bang has some other more basic problems which is the big one where did all this stuff come from and we all ask ourselves that question. I say it all the time. And science is so powerful, they have ignored the fact that they don't have the answer to this question. And in fact, the question is unanswered. Now, why do I say that the question is unanswerable? Because I challenge anybody to think of a way for something to come from nothing. Any experiment for something to come from nothing. Let me be more specific. For an independent world to come from nothing. We know there is a way for something to come from nothing with the mind involved, which we're getting to. But how can something come from nothing independent of the mind? 
Leon Letterman, the uh, author of The God Particle, had this to say about the beginning of it all. He said, We don't know anything about the universe until it reaches the mature age of a billionth of a trillionth of a second. That is, some very short time after creation and the Big Bang. When you read or hear about the birth of the universe, someone is making it up. We are in the realm of philosophy. Only God knows what happened at the very beginning. So, Leon Letterman here, professor of physics at at the University of Chicago, is being very candid. He's basically saying a lot of people talk about the Big Bang, but nobody really knows what happened at the beginning. And it's really presumptuous to start pontificating about what happened, since it's all a deep mystery. And then we come to another problem with the Big Bang, and this is the Big Bang worldview. This is called the organizing principle. And another way to put this is that where did the order arise? Doesn't it seem strange that an explosion would lead to infinite order? Where did the laws of nature come from? Now, uh, interestingly, two philosophers face this question. And they're not remembered very well, but it's well known that David Hume the 18th century Scottish philosopher, really concluded that the only source of the regularity, the constancy we see, is in our need and belief. We need and believe for there to be regularity, so there is. And I have probably simplified his thinking, but that's that's where he concluded. Now, interestingly, Immanuel Kant who is known as probably one of the greatest thinkers of all time, probably, I would put him above Einstein, but he's way up there with Plato and Aristotle. He believed that the regularity of the world is imposed by the human mind. And he called this the new Copernican revolution, where now, instead of our minds conforming to objects, objects conform to the mind. Okay. And so this is, is, is really an amazing step forward. Uh, German philosopher Immanuel Kant in the 19th century said that the structure of the human mind imposes order upon the world. Uh, he's never really been refuted, but he's been ignored. And I happen to think he was right. And being right should count for something if we're trying to understand the world. And then we come to the next point here which is there are a lot of experiments that put the human that put the independent world hypothesis into question and here are some of them hallucinations you could spend a lot of time just thinking about hallucinations there's a book by Oliver Sacks who I believe just passed away called hallucinations and he just talks about amazing uh recreations of the physical world by people in states of stress, diseases, drugs, but hallucinations where the hallucinator imagines a real seeming world. And isn't that strange that the mind in these stressed out states, these drug states, can conjure up a world from nothing? Doesn't that give us a sign of where the real world comes from. And then we all have our dreams. We all, at at night, 
or maybe in daydreams, we conjure up a little our own little world that seems real to us at the time. Well, there is no Big Bang during the dream. There's no Big Bang during the hallucination. But our mind itself, with no help from anything, conjured up this real-seeming world. That should tell us something. Then we move to the whole field of what is known as the paranormal psychic phenomena. We have precognitive dreams. Dreams that foretell a happening in the real world. We have synchronicity. These amazing coincidences that occur as if there's an author to a story and we're just playing a small part in it. My favorite one, probably, is the one where a woman lost her wedding ring at a potato farm. And then a year or two later, she went shopping, bought a bag of potatoes. And yes, she found her ring in a potato in a bag that she bought at a store. Now that, to me says that something is going on. Then we have mind over matter. We have people lifting cars. We have dice rolling that doesn't that is beyond the laws of probability. We have all sorts of things occurring where the mind seems to affect the physical world. Then there's telepathy. People reading minds, knowing what's on someone's mind, uh, predicting what someone's going to say. All these strange things that show there's a web of interconnectedness. So the the paranormal or the psychic phenomena shows, I think, that there's a connection between mind and matter, an unbreakable bridge that is sort of hidden, but it's there. And during the right time, during the right moments, intense feelings, deep, deeply emotional states, uh, strong caring the the bond becomes visible it comes out in the open and we see we see somebody uh doing something beyond the normal jumping farther than anyone's ever jumped jumping higher sinking 10 baskets in a row sinking putts as a golfer running farther all these feats that that come from this concentration mind over matter now, interestingly, this whole notion that there is a connection between mind and matter is, is, plays out in a field of thought, a field of philosophy called idealism, which has been shunted off to the side by our materialistic Big Bang worldview. And interestingly, in idealism, uh, it, it, it was um, discovered or concluded that when we experience something in the physical world, such as an apple, all the qualities that we're experiencing of that apple reside in the mind. For example, the taste, the smell of an apple, the touch, they're all subjective senses. And so most scientists will say that the, the quality of an apple, such as the taste, doesn't reside in the apple. It resides inside of us, our brains, our neurons. And one way to look at this is that not everybody has the same taste. Beer is a good example. Some people hate beer. Some people like beer. You can say the same thing, same thing about virtually any food. Well, if the taste was inherent in the, in the food, then everyone would taste the same thing. So there really is a subjective feature to it, and color blindness is another example. 
But what happened in the 18th century was that George Berkeley looked at this and said, you know, even though some people say that the secondary qualities, taste, touch, sound, are are subjective, and that these primary qualities, primary qualities being number, density, solidity, that the primary qualities are outside of us. He said, you know, you can't separate the two because the secondary qualities, the taste, the sound, the touch, are interwoven, are inseparable from the primary qualities. Both are subjective. And he came to the conclusion that all qualities are in the mind, that matter is really a mental concept, that there's no such thing as independent matter, that it's all a product of the mind. And this is the way he put it in his book, Principles of Human Knowledge. He said, all the choir of heaven and furniture of the earth, and any word, all those bodies which compose the mighty frame of the world have not any subsistence without a mind, that the world does not exist without a mind. And who is the mind? George Berkeley thought the mind was God. Now, interestingly, a 20th century physicist, Sir James Jean, in his book, The Mysterious Universe, said this. He said, creations of an individual mind may reasonably be called less substantial than creations of a universal mind. Doesn't that sort of put the picture together, or at least starts getting down there? What is he saying? He's saying creations of an individual mind, our dreams, our hallucinations, may be called less substantial than creations of a universal mind, such as God. Maybe God dreams the world, and that's why it's so substantial. So, that's this is where, you know, notice here, I haven't made any grand, I hope I haven't made any grand leap here. I'm going down this path. I'm showing some of the problems with the Big Bang worldview and how the idealists sort of analyze the same problem, all coming to the same point, that there's really not an independent world. Then let's go to the question, well, what are we? If there's a world, there's no world independent of us, what are we? And this question could take up a lot of time. I'm going to get to the point here and use Descartes, the French philosopher Descartes. He said, I think, therefore I am. What did he really mean? He meant fundamentally that he could doubt everything that there was in the world. He could doubt whether the world was a was really there. He could doubt whether God existed, but he could not doubt the fact that he was thinking and what was doing the thinking, his mind. He came to the conclusion that he's fundamentally a mind. And frankly, nobody has disproved Descartes on this point. And here's the point being that we have greater certainty over our own mind than we have over any other fact. Some people may disagree with me, and and you're never going to get 100% consensus on this kind of stuff. But the point is, is that when you think real hard about it, aren't you more confident that you're thinking than there is a sky overhead or that there's a song on the radio? There's nothing more 
positive, more affirmable than you're thinking. So despite all this, modern science still assumes the independent world, but this is a model, and this is why it's so important. It's a model, but even scientists know the model does not reflect reality. Stephen Hawking, in the book The Grand Design, said, there is no picture or or theory-independent concept of reality. In other words, every concept, every hypothesis, every theory assumes a certain vision of reality. And the vision of reality that science is assuming is one where the world exists independent of us. So where does this lead? Well, if the world is an appearance, a dream, a projection, then there's something else that's true. We must be part of that projection. We're not machines, we're spirits. We're spirits in a spiritual world, dreamers in a dreamt world. Siddhartha in the book, I'm sorry, Herman Hess in the book Siddhartha, had his character Siddhartha say something like this to his friend Govinda. Govinda asked Siddhartha, who was roaming the forest, getting to know himself, thinking all these deep thoughts like I'm sort of doing here, And Govinda says, well, Siddhartha, if the world is an illusion, then doesn't that give you great concern? And Siddhartha says something like, it doesn't bother me in the least, because if the world is an illusion, then so am I, and it's it's every part of who I am. And that's the concept that we haven't come to understand yet, that that's why the world is real to us, because we are the same kind as the world. I just happen to think we're not machines in a mechanical world. We're dreamers in a dreamt world. And then we come to the question we asked before, well, why do we see the same sky? Well, the Big Bang says we see the same sky because there's one sky outside of multiple minds. One picture screen outside the movie theater. Well, in my opinion, this is the real dream worldview, The reason we see the same sky is because we're united. We have one mind. We're sharing the same mind. We're participating in the same dream. We see the same sky because we have one mind. We are really one. The great mystics were correct. There is a core being. This core being is what some people call God. And we can see here that we have a convergence going on. We have materialism, which assumes the Big Bang as true, the Big Bang worldview. But the Big Bang worldview ends in quantum theory, which concluded, as I said earlier, that the independent world doesn't really exist. We have idealism, which says matter is a concept of the mind. Don't these say the same thing in different words? Now, is this strange? Strange compared to what? Remember, in the Big Bang worldview, we have to imagine that the universe was at one point condensed into a pinhead, the singularity, that contained enough matter to create the entire universe. It exploded for no reason, created the world. 95% of matter is invisible. That's dark matter. 
we just can't see it, which is a little strange. The multiverse it explains, according to science, explains why we live in such a harmonious universe. The multiverse being this notion that there's really an infinity of other universes out there that we'll never experience. The inflationary Big Bang says that in order to account for the smoothness of the universe, the flatness of the universe, that the universe really expanded, or the Big Bang really expanded by something like 10 to the 40th times in 10 to the minus 35th second. It just like had this incredible expansion and slowed down for the heck of it. But why? Well, because science, scientists, cosmologists had to explain why the universe was so balanced. And then there's string theory, the favorite theory of going on right now, which sounds really cool. And Brian Greene wrote a, a, a very, very nice book called The Elegant Universe. But in the string theory, a couple things to take note of, it requires about 10 extra dimensions. Nobody's ever experienced those dimensions. And it also uh, cannot be proven true. As Lee Smolin writes, a book that I mention a lot in The Trouble with Physics, he says not only is there no experiment to prove string theory true, no one can imagine a theory, I mean, an experiment to prove string theory true. There's dark energy. There's antimatter. I can go on and on. So what is more strange, the notion that we're one mind dreaming the world or that 90%, 95% of the matter is invisible, string theory really exists in the 13 different dimensions, the universe exploded from a dense seed, there's a multiverse out there. Think about it with an open mind. What seems more strange to you? We should judge theories based upon their explanatory power, not upon the credentials of the person pontificating them. And I think that when you compare these two theories, this would be the Big Bang versus the real dream theory, we see that the real dream theory worldview has vastly superior explanatory power. Example, origin of matter, Big Bang, no explanation. The real dream theory, well, matter is a function of the dreaming mind. Organizing mechanism, Big Bang, no explanation for the order in the world. The real dream, it's the mind's need for order. We want there to be order. There is order. Paranormal, Big Bang does not exist. The real dream, the natural reaction of the united dreaming mind. Of course, minds could affect the physical world since the physical world is a product of the mind. Origin of life, no explanation in the Big Bang Theory. In the real dream, origin, life is the mind's movement from, from nothing. It's the best vehicle the mind can imagine to experience life and to forget that we're really nothing. You have to read my book, The Collapse of Materialism, to find out more about this. Religion is delusional in the Big Bang worldview. In the real dream, it is an inner reverence for the miracle of the world, which I think sort of makes sense. And you could put that in different in ways, different phrases, but religion, I really think, is an inner reverence for the miracle that we're even here. The wave-particle duality of quantum theory, Big Bang has no consensus. There's all sorts of different theories. The real dream is simply the sign of dream stuff. We live in a world of dream stuff, so naturally it's going to react 
sometimes as a particle, sometimes as a wave, depending on what we want it to be. Morality. Big Bang says there's no scientific basis. The real dream, if spirit is one, people must act as one. Morality, therefore, has a scientific basis. So notice here, in our little logical path to spirituality, we didn't make any assumptions. I did not assume an independent world. Night dreams and hallucinations show a power of the mind. The psychic phenomena shows the ability of the mind to influence the world, to read people's minds. The roots of idealism, all qualities exist in the mind. Idealism is one of the leading metaphysics in philosophy. We explain the order, beauty, and mathematical harmonies, and explain spirit. It explains our attachment to the immaterial because we are spirits. It's a logical, it's logical. We're, we're united at the core of being. The world's an outgrowth of spirit. And from this standpoint, we're imprisoned by the world only if we think it does. In other words, we're determined by the world by such things as medical science, only if we think it does. The cure will work if we think it does. The cure won't work if we don't think it does. Maybe it's not that simple, but read about the placebo effect, and that sort of tells you that there's some truth here. We're not spirits in a material world, but spirits in a spiritual world, and this is very, very important. So at the end of the path... I hope you could see that going down this path, we use reason and minds to find spirit, to find the immaterial, to find the ephemeral. And I think from this perspective, materialism is not a terrible thing. It's an evolutionary stage of spirit seeking to know itself. An evolutionary stage of spirit seeking to know itself. We throw out the world, we cannot understand it. We think it's outside of us, and slowly it draws nearer to us. We realize we are part of it. And so the good news is that from this perspective, things look very bright, because as we come to understand the world, as we come to see that it is a outcome of ourselves, a product of ourselves, we, we draw closer to it, we become to under, understand it, and we start to master it. We start to control the world, control our lives, live happier, longer lives, make peace. Very idealistic, utopian, but logical, and I think something worth thinking about. This is Philip Camella. This is a special show of Conversations Beyond Science and Religion. Thank you for listening. been listening to Conversations Beyond Science and Religion, hosted by Philip Camella. To find out more about Philip and his book, The Collapse of Materialism, visit thecollapseofmaterialism.com.